five short years ago, I was um, in much better shape than I am now, believe it or not. I was an uh, all-conference linebacker. I uh, led our team in tackles and interceptions in high school. I love football. And I remember one game specifically, we're in this battle plan series, so I figured a football illustration would help kick this off. I was um, having a really good game, it was halftime, but we were playing a team that was not as good as we were. And how many of us know when we're supposed to win, there's now this extra pressure to win? And so our team is actually down after the first quarter, and we're all starting to get after each other. We're, we're fighting with each other. People are missing blocks on purpose because they have a grudge about, with the running back. There, there's just this conflict amongst our team because we should be crushing this team. And right before halftime, I uh, jumped up to catch a pass over the middle, and our quarterback threw just a nice lofty pass that every strong safety dreams of. If you know football, you know where I'm going with this. I am running, going to catch it, and the strong safety comes across the field, helmet to helmet, just lays me out. I was out cold, took 10 seconds, I finally came to, got back up, and I'm like wobbling to the sideline. I know it's bad. Like, you know when you know. And I did have a concussion. And in halftime in the locker room, our team is just fighting with each other. The coach is yelling at people. Players are yelling at each other. It's just a super emotional, intense scene. And if you didn't know, one of the uh, key indicators of a significant concussion is your emotions just go out of whack. So I'm this manly, all-conference linebacker, football player, team captain, leading the charge, but I'm concussed. And everybody's fighting with each other, and I'm sitting there, and tears are welling up down my face. And I literally, I had enough. I slapped my hands on the bench, and I stood up, and I said, why are we yelling at each other right now? We should be together. <laughs> and my coach realized what had happened, and he sent the trainer, and the trainer, like, come on, Bryce, let's go. <laughs> And like set me in the other room because it would have been humiliating if he allowed me to continue to share my heart. <laughs> Oftentimes we lose battles we're supposed to win because we have internal conflict on our team. And this morning what we're talking about is being battle ready. We're talking about friendly fire. Everybody say friendly fire. If you don't know what friendly fire it is, it's when you're in the war zone and you have no idea what's going on and you actually injure someone on your team. There are casualties at the hands of a teammate. And it's one of the most frustrating um, parts of any sport or any war strategy. It's friendly fire. It just shouldn't happen. There should not be internal conflict that sinks the ship or loses the war. And today, this morning, what I'm talking about is how we can navigate that as a church, as a people, as a Christian fellowship. How do we stop harming or injuring each other? It reminds me of a story in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where Jonathan has this plan. Jonathan's in the Bible in the Old Testament. He, he has this horrible plan where him and just his armor bearer are going up the side of a cliff that's slippery and jagged, and they're going to surprise um, a garrison of the Philistines. So there's two of them and there's 20 of the Philistines, so they're already outnumbered 1 to 10. They actually at this time don't have any weapons because the Philistines didn't allow them to make swords or spears. So they're probably running up this cliff with a shovel, 2 verses 20, worst plan ever, and they go and they take down the first guy, and then shortly after that, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 20, Samuel, or Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. 
Bible reading uh, disclaimer, this chapter is not about Satan climbing up a cliff, but here's the image. I'm believing that Satan, unarmed, no power, on his own, outnumbered by every bit of heaven's army, is climbing up a cliff, striking one person down, and watching chaos ensue in our camp. And he is wreaking havoc and winning a war that he has no business winning because we have internal conflict. Do you hear me? He has no business winning this war and wreaking havoc on our congregation or our families, but he consistently, repeatedly wins a war that he has no power over because of our choices to harm each other. So this morning, I actually have a letter from General Brian Henley. He has noticed that we have friendly fire in our camp, and he has tasked me with fixing it. So let me read you the letter. He says this, Sergeant Johnson, our troops are equipped in every way to win the battles set before us, yet we continuously lose. After a thorough investigation of our troops' performance, we have come to realize that sadly we have consistently taken out more of our own troops than even the enemy has. We are referring to this phenomena as friendly fire and have tasked you with launching a comprehensive game plan to eliminate this hindrance to our victory. Take courage, Sergeant Johnson. Be vigilant and keep taking one step closer. Sincerely, General Henley. So that's our task this morning, and I hope you join me on this journey. I'm going to unpack three separate significant uh, problems that we face on the battlefield that contribute to our friendly fire, and then I hope to offer you three solutions and a moment at the end to repent. And I told our friends this morning, the leadership huddle, that this is a message that I have not fully arrived on. It's not something that I have all of the answers to, although I'll give you my best. This is something that I as well need to repent daily of, friendly fire, harming those in our camp. I need three contestants, and our intern can come up. We have a few of these. If you are a man in this room or a woman who is a sharpshooter, someone who genuinely believes that they are going to win a war, I need you to come up to uh, the stage right now. So Caleb's going to come out with a few extra guns. I need four people. Let's see them. Four people. Come on. Lily, you want up here? Yes, Lily. Round of applause for Lily. I need Chaka up here, Pastor Eric, and one more. Tina, come on up here. Round of applause. Yep. So you just come right around here, Lily. Yep, yep, yep. All right, give them their weapons. Oh, here you go, Lily. Does everyone know how to operate one of these weapons? Pastor, can you teach Tina how to shoot? Chaka, can you come over here? So we're going to have a little social experiment this morning. I hope you're ready. We're going to have a, a miniature battle up here, a nerf battle, and this is okay because I am the youth pastor, as I've said before. They are going to fight 2v2. Last person standing is the victor. You guys listening? I'm giving the rules right now. The last person standing, that team wins. It's two versus two. And make sure you two spread out a little bit more because here's the catch. And you can start to play that epic music. The catch is this. You don't know who your teammate is. I'm going to give you a count of three, and I'm going to get out of the way with Caleb. 
And on the count of three, you're going to go to war. The last person standing is the victor, and you get candy with your teammate afterwards. And I'll tell you who your teammate was after the war. Cool? All right. One, two, three. You're out. Reload, reload. <laughs> you can throw darts. You can throw them. Tina's out. It's the, did you get out, Lily? Chaka is the winner. Round of applause. Chaka, good job. Your teammate was Tina, who you just threw a dart at. Hey, thank you guys for competing. Uh, Tina and Chaka, I have some candy for you after service. Round of applause one more time for our contestants. And if you guys could give the bullets and guns to Caleb, he will take care of it. All right, Chaka just totally speared his own teammate. That was a prime example of friendly fire. Here's the reason we did that. And shout out to the tech team. That was, if you were wondering, that was Anakin versus Obi-Wan Kenobi fight scene. The point here is that we are actually fighting the wrong enemy. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Because it's not what you think. What I'm saying here is that the issue is not that we just have a misunderstanding of who's on our team. We actually don't even know what to be looking for. We believe that the enemy is a group of people that have a different set of beliefs or practices. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the last time I checked, there is not a person on earth that is an evil force in the heavenly realms. People are not our enemies. And I'm gonna, when I give you the solution, I will ease the frustration you're feeling right now because there are people who are opposed to Christ. Amen? There is a set of people who have bought into an idea that is counter to Christ. But those people are not our enemies. Amen? Those beliefs that are not our own, we can be opposed to them, but we are not opposed to the person. I don't care how deeply rooted the idea is in their heart. And I know this because Jesus was not opposed to the demon-possessed man. He was opposed to the demon. He was not opposed to the people in the temple wreaking havoc and stealing money. He was opposed to the practice itself and the idea behind it. Jesus had no human enemies. And I know there are people in this room who would disagree with that, and that's okay. I'll give you the, the solution to this will help you understand that even more. We do not have earthly enemies. There is not a person, a man, a woman, a news reporter. There's not a person on earth that is our enemy. Even if they believe something to be so horrible, they are not the enemy. Christ had no enemies. To reiterate, we are committing friendly fire because we don't understand who the real enemy is. There, I promise you there are people in this church who disagree with you. There are people in this church who think Hawaiian pizza is acceptable. There are, there are seemingly enemies all around us, but there is one truth that I know, not a person in this room is your enemy. And when we walk with that understanding, it helps us to navigate kindly. So the first image was that Nerf War. The second image that will help us understand the problem of friendly fire is a tug of war. And we won't actually have the tug of war because I don't want to see anyone get dragged across the room. 
this image, this is the tension we're constantly playing with here. It is a misbalance of unity versus purity. Let me unpack that. It is a misbalance of unity versus purity. Over here, we have the camp who is all about unity. And I love this camp. Over here, we have the camp that is all about purity. And I also love this camp. But here's what happens. This side that's fighting for purity, here's what they sound like. No Christian should ever listen to secular music. We just have to put a stake in the ground right now. We can't do it. And they put another stake in the ground. I do not ever want to see a Calvinist worship in the same room as me. Stake in the ground. Purity. And understand, this is a theological purity or a purity of doctrine and dogma, um, which is just kind of church language for what we believe. And I tell you right now, the Assemblies of God, the fellowship that this church is attached to, has a set list of things that we believe are true. And I think they're a pretty good list. I don't have an issue with them. But when we are pulling so hard against unity to get these stakes in the ground to make sure that our camp is right and we, we don't sacrifice anything. Do you, do you hear my heart? Do you hear what I'm saying? We, oh my goodness, this fires me up. We have such an ugly history. The church, and, and I'm not talking about anything like super current. I'm talking about historically. We have such an ugly history. Did you know that we slaughtered went to churches, put bags over the pastor's head and pulled out congregants and drowned them because they believed in full immersion baptism. That's our history. And that's not, we, we have slaughtered Eastern Orthodoxy churches and we don't ever hear about that. I didn't even learn about that in Bible college because it's such an ugly mark on the church. And it is crazy to me, and I understand when you believe something to be true about God, the creator and sustainer of all things. It is important that we get that right, and we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But what that doesn't mean is once we've worked it out, we have it. And everyone else is wrong but me. Unity over purity. And, and there's, a, there's a pendulum swinging. So hear me. I'm not saying unity is always more important. I'm saying right now in this cultural moment, unity, we're starving for it because we haven't seen it. Because we've put all of our money in purity. We have said if you, I mean, 40 years ago, we believed, and there may be people in here, and I, I'm not trying to step on your toes. We believed that if Jesus came back while you were in a movie theater, you weren't going to heaven. Which is crazy to us now, but there are people who felt so strongly about the evil things happening in the movie theater, and I don't say that jokingly. There are things that, that ensnare us. The, the purity camp has good intentions. But so does the unity camp, and I think we need to pull a little bit further this way. I think there's two people over here who've been dragged through the mud for a long time, and we need to bolster this side so that there's an even, balanced tension. Purity says it is important that we protect against false teachings, while unity says we must stay unified as Christ died for each of us. If this is like... If this is getting you right now, I just want to charge you with this. Read Romans chapter 14 and 15 over and over and over. We're going to unpack Romans chapter 14 for a while here. I wish I could spend all day on it, but we're just going to sit with it for a little bit. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. 
The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them both. So Paul is writing a letter to the Romans, and what's happening here is they have a pretty much a 50-50 split on people who think that they still have to observe kosher food laws and those who don't. Those, and, and this is interesting. And there's also like, do we observe the holy days and the sacred days and all these sacred holidays, or is every day sacred to God now? And this is Jesus kind of disrupting everything, and you've got to split. And so Paul, and remember, these letters aren't just written for you and me. They're written to real people in real circumstances. And there is something happening in this church that Paul, not just as an apostle, but as a pastor, is trying to shepherd. So picture, picture if we just had this like, crazy, like, if you root for the Ohio State Buckeyes, like, you can't be in my small group. Like, this, but, like, seriously, it happens in our church. Like, if that were the case, and Pastor Brian were writing a letter to our church, this is kind of, like, what's going on here. But it's not about something like football. It's about something that's important, what people believe about God. So this is why that tension between unity and purity matters. So the letter that Paul is writing to, the, their main issue is the food laws and the sacred days. But what he's saying, and there's the weaker Christians and the stronger Christians, and he's actually kind of throwing shade at the people who think you have to follow strict, rigid rules. And the Assemblies of God comes from the, the holiness tradition, so we observe strict rules. Ministers are still not allowed to drink, and I'm not saying that they should. I, my personal preference on any of these things doesn't matter right now. And I'd be happy to share that with you. I'm like digging a hole now. I don't, I don't drink. I don't ever have a desire to drink. I think it sets a good example. But I'm not upset with anyone who does social drinking. But this is like that. But what he's saying is that the weaker Christians are the ones who say you can't drink. And the stronger Christians are the one who says you can. And I'm not trying to make an argument for stronger or weaker Christians. But what Paul is doing is he's saying I have a side that I agree with. And it seems like Paul would be okay with social drinking, things like that. The more, um, don't, don't politicize this, liberal or conservative in our holiness, don't read too much into that. It's not about that. But Paul is saying, and I, I hope I didn't lose you there. <laughs> what Paul, this is the culture we live in. We're very polarized. You see me like dancing around on a tightrope up here. Let's stop the polarization. That's what I'm talking about. Paul is saying, even though I agree with this group, I'm not going to be a jerk about it to this group. He actually makes a charge to the stronger Christians. I don't care that you're right or wrong. Even, even if, and he says this, right? right and, and I won't read it, but he basically says, I know for a fact that this group is wrong but you are charged to love them. If they are eating a certain fast or a certain way, you better not invite them over to dinner and have a bunch of bacon. If you invite me over for dinner, you better have a bunch of bacon. <laughs> but if I were doing a Daniel fast or I felt like God had called me to give up pork for kosher laws or something like that, let's be like Christ to them. And, and it seems simple now because we've kind of gotten over the food thing as followers of Jesus, but there are real issues there are real things that people get super fired up about that we have to walk carefully as we love them and learn to love them better. So a few observations from this text in Romans. One, holiness is actually seen as weakness, and that doesn't mean that purity doesn't matter. It's just that's Paul's stance on it. Two, Paul knows that the weak Christians are wrong, yet he's vouching for them. 
three, again, read Romans 14 and 15. It's so important that we get this right. The third kind of observation from this chapter is that Paul desires sincere belief in one's stance and says that doing so honors God. If they genuinely believe that they're worshiping God by not eating bacon, Paul says, that's fine. If there is someone who disagrees with you, and I'm going to give you some, some hints on how do we navigate this with the really important things, but the secondary issues, let them love Jesus and listen to secular music. And, and explain your testimony as to why you view the other way. Like, our emotional intelligence has to go up enough to where we can have a disagreeing conversation and walk away in love. Yeah, no, it's important. It's important we get this because the spotlight's on us, church. The culture can't figure this out. We should be able to. We're losing our witness. All right, so let's lighten it up a little bit. This is the best joke of the 20th century. You're going to like this. You just have to, you have to follow it. It's a quick one. The joke goes like this. I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump, and I ran over to him, and I said, stop, don't do it. And he says, why shouldn't I? And I said, well, there's so much to live for. And he asked me, like what? I said, well, are you religious? And he said, yes. I said, me too. Are you a Christian, Buddhist, Muslim? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. And then he says, are you Episcopalian or Baptist? And I said, Baptist. And he said, wow, me too. And he asked me this, are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? And I said, Baptist Church of the Lord. And then I said, are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? And he says, reformed Baptist Church of God. And I said, me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? And he said, Reformation Baptist Church of the Reformation of 1915. In that moment, I realized that the man standing before me was a total heretic. So I pushed him off the bridge and I said, die. The point of this joke is to highlight our intolerance towards others. Honestly, I have not arrived. I preface with this, I have not arrived on this. And I'll, I'll give you a few, like, where I actually stand on a few things. One, um, I just believe wholeheartedly, without a shadow of doubt, that women should be able to minister in churches. And that's, pause, pause. There may be people in this church who don't believe that. And that is not about our salvation. And I struggle. I, I really struggle. But I also love those people, and they are a part of what makes up the body of Christ. Another one, this one's a little bit sillier, but I just want to be respectful. There probably are people in this room. King James only. The only, the only translation of the Bible you can read is King James. I personally don't understand that. But if that person's coming over for a Bible study, I don't mind flipping open a King James. I'd have to blow the dust off, but I'll do it. Do you hear my heart? Even the ones that like are still tough for me to understand. If they are secondary issues, it ought to be nothing but love. I don't care how fired up you are about the issue. And I'm, I'd say I'm moderately fired up about the women, women in ministry issue. Moderately. All right. So let me give you some more. If you don't, if you don't know much about church history, let me just give you some more like disagreeable topics here. We've got Calvinists versus Arminianists. 
Are you once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Should you be charismatic, infant baptism or adult? And if you are baptizing someone, should it be full immersion or sprinkle? We've killed people, not exaggerating, we have killed people in the church over whether or not you baptize someone in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, or just in the name of Jesus. This is called the one name argument, and we have killed people over this argument. Like 40, 50, 60 years ago, this has happened. Pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, and we just get super weird when we talk about end times. <laughs> Is there a rapture at all? Should you be a millennialist, dispensationalist, or historic pre-mill? If you have questions, Caleb just finished up his freshman year at North Point. He'd be happy to answer those questions. <laughs> Should we speak in tongues? Does God heal people? Or not anymore? Is Mary important? Should Christians drink? Should we watch movies? Can women preach? Do pastors need education, or do they just need the Holy Ghost in the Bible? There's a thousand different things that we have disagreed upon, and I just know for any worldwide organization like the church, and I don't say organization like it's a bad thing, but you don't see every McDonald's in every different city debating whether or not they should serve chicken tenders or chicken nuggets, and nobody's passionate about that. And I, I know that the food industry does not matter nearly as much as Christ and his church. But you, like, why are we so staunchly divided? And there was a movement called the ecumenical movement back in the 80s, and I, it's not in my notes, so I won't talk long about it, but look into that if you're interested. There was actually a, a push, and it had a lot of traction, to eliminate the denominational lines. And I'm not a proponent of eliminating denominational lines. I think there's a good, you know, there's a lot of good that comes from being of the same mind on a lot of things. And I think we can do a lot of good that way. Um, and I've actually just come to realize that the capital C church matters a lot more than which denomination you're part of. And I see our Baptist friends as a part of the church. And so it, in a way, eliminates those lines without having to eliminate them through policy. So we've said a lot of things. Let me just remind you, the first kind of issue is we're fighting the wrong enemy. The second issue is that we have an imbalance of unity versus purity. I think we need to lean into unity a bit more. Um, and, and I'll just pull this verse up really quick, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This doesn't mean work it out with fear and trembling till you get it, then you got it. This means we always approach the things of God with humility. I was taught in Bible college the number one rule of a, being a theologian is you can't be a jerk. Uh, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says that now we see through a glass lit dimly or darkly. And that basically means we as a church are okay with mystery with things of God being unexplainable. And in our Western civilization, we have an issue with that idea that there are things about God that are just a mystery. If you can explain the Trinity, write the book, I'll write the foreword, and it will make a million dollars. All right, moving on. The last image is this us versus them mentality that has just totally taken us captive in society. And if you could throw the, uh, the little graphic on the screen of the us versus them so if you can all read this, um, this is a great uh, little cartoon that depicts it. Um, this is our blessed homeland over here with our glorious leader commanding. 
Our great religion is the chapel there, and our noble populace is the common folks here, and there are our heroic adventurers going out. And on the other side, you have these brutish invaders, their backward savages, their primitive superstitions, their wicked depot? Death, death spot? Okay. I guess I should have prepped better. <laughs> Thank you for so many of you who are quick to help me with my English. This says it all. This says it all. And to, to illustrate this point, literally, when I was 12 years old, I'm not trying to start like cheering or anything. I thought people who rooted for Michigan State were whiny, and I thought, by and large, that the collection of people who rooted for MSU were not good people, that they cut corners and were selfish, and like, Amen. okay, that's what I, <laughs> you couldn't help yourself. <laughs> It's, it's silly, but seriously, I thought that. And it's sobering now to look back that I actually believe that about a group of people. And it speaks to this dynamic called social identity theory. Social identity theory is how we group ourselves. We put ourselves in different tribes. And the rules of all of these different tribes is that our tribe has to be the best, or else why would I be in this tribe? And if my group is the best, the other tribes must be worse than us. So how can I make sure that everyone knows that my tribe is the best tribe and all the other ones are worse than me? It's simple, but it's vicious. And we live in a culture, and this us versus them mentality, they, them. When I hear people use the word they a lot, and not just they common, they, they as in those out to get me or those bad people, they is a nasty word. They means not of me. Over there. They're not a part of, of what I'm doing. It's powerful. And tribes are powerful. A tight-knit community is good. It's not inherently bad, but what we've done with our tribes is horrible. And what leads us to this place is a few things, and there's a lot, and I don't want to go for the easy bait of politics or media or whatever, but there's a few things that are important here. One is media, news, social media, it all profits off of getting your attention. If, if the news has your attention, they have viewership, which means they have ads. So it is set up inherently to try to get your attention at all costs. So we know one of the things that catches our attention more than anything is conflict. Uh, I'm going to say it. I don't watch the news at all. My dad loves the news. He's a man of God. He's awesome. I love my dad. He's my hero. He coached me. So I love my dad. Um, okay, so he, he has always told me that there is one news station that just says it how it is, and they say the truth, and they don't, they're not mean and nasty. They just, and I genuinely believed him. I thought that was true. And then the other news source is vile and wicked and nasty, and they're always throwing slander and hate. And I, I, like, I never watched the news, so I didn't know. And we were on a fishing trip last year, and he turned on his station, and the person is just shredding and name-calling and nasty and, like, visibly, like, fire, like, and I can't believe that this person, after all the, like, just wicked nasty. And I was like, I thought this was the one that's not like this. And apparently... They're both like that, because he showed me the other one later to prove that he was right. 
They are both nasty, is what I'm saying. But what concerned me is that there, is a, there are people in this room, I'm sure, who believe that one is not nasty and the other is. And I was genuinely taken back by the, and it's rhetoric, it's all rhetoric, the conflict, the anger. And we have gotten to a place in culture where, yes, there are drug addictions, yes, there's pornography addictions, yes, there's mobile addictions, gaming addictions, but one of the sneakiest addictions in our culture is the addiction to outrage. Outrage fills us with dopamine in our brain, and it feels good to be angry at those other people. I can't believe they're doing this thing. Hear me, church. It is so important that we catch ourselves in the, the drug of outrage before we get too far in. And, and it works just like a drug. And here's... This is... Um, how do I say this? Outrage used to be safe because if you pointed at something and said, this is horrible, this is horrible, like you wouldn't do that very often because if, if the whole tribe came up to that thing and said, that's not so bad, why are, you, why are you so outraged? You would then be cast out. But here's what's made it seamless and frictionless and easy. Internet, social media, just guilt-free outlets to just throw your junk. And I'm charging you guys to be a prophetic community that speaks against this, that actually turns the tide. And I have a zero-tolerance policy for overly political, angry, rude social media in our youth leadership team because I don't ever want a student to feel like someone's not for them in our church. I don't care even if the student is wrong. Like Paul said, I don't care if they're wrong. They need to feel loved and cared for. And I don't care if you think your tough love is caring for them. Anna and I talk about all this all the time. It doesn't matter if you think what you're doing should make someone feel loved. What matters is whether or not they feel loved. It's, it's a, you throw the love, and if they don't catch it, you need to throw it differently. If they don't feel loved by your tough love, you're not loving. We need to get better at this. This is social identity theory. There's a lot of good, easy-read articles if you're interested in that. Let me reiterate. We are committing friendly fire because we are indoctrinated in an us-versus-them culture. That's point three. Point one is... Let me go back here. We are fighting the wrong enemy, one. Two, we have an imbalance of unity versus purity. And three, we have an us-versus-them mentality. It's pretty bad, right? But General Brian Henley did not task me with just finding the problem. He's also tasked me with trying to solve it. So here is my attempt now to give you some strategies to actually overcome this. And it takes repenting, like I said. It takes undoing, unlearning. It takes changing our habits, our intake. But let me unpack some, the, three, the three kind of solutions to each problem. The first problem, remember, is... Um, we're fighting the wrong enemy. And the solution to that is that we see the image of God in all people. The key here is that the enemy is not a person. We see it with Jesus and the demon-possessed man. We see it with Jesus and Zacchaeus. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says this simply, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his shed blood be shed. Um, all I'm trying to say here is that for God is made in the image of God is the ending of that verse. So that is the solution. If, if you're struggling with seeing people as the enemy and not 
of dark powers. Um, just remember that everyone is made in the image of God. There's not a person on earth that God loves less. Period. There's not a person that Jesus doesn't want to pursue less than another. He doesn't have favorites. Point number two, how do we get over that unity versus purity um, issue is that we choose to be united over being right. Do you want to be right or do you want to be united? Do you want to be correct and feel good about your beliefs or do you want to be a unified church that has a witness and a testimony to the world? We have figured it out. If you believe in Christ, you will be made a new creation and therefore we don't have to slaughter each other with our words, gossip, slander, backstabbing, abandonment. Or do you want to be right theologically? And good luck being right theologically, by the way. Let me give you, okay, so this is a big one. When do we actually draw the line and say this is not Christian? And I have, I have a, a, a little solution for you. Two con, three conditions. One, the issue is not about one of our four core tenets of faith. Trinity, Jesus is Savior, sin is real, and all out of fourth, the Bible is inspired. If you're not messing with those four, we don't need to draw any lines. The second kind of key there is that the issue if the issue has legitimate support from both sides of Scripture, it can't be finalized authoritatively. And here's a good example. Whether you like it or not, there's support in Scripture for both Calvinism and Arminianism. There just is. And I, I have my leanings and, and beliefs, but there is support for both. The th and it, how arrogant would we be to say that an, an entire like 50% of our church is just dumb and they don't get it? Like it's obvious. It's not obvious, or else we would have agreed upon it by now. And then the third, the third kind of thing is that the issue has not been authoritatively settled by the church. So an example of that is all followers of Jesus have agreed that it is by grace, not works, that we are saved. You can't, you can't mess with that one. Continuing a little bit in Romans 14, uh, chapter 14, 13 through 15. And again, I encourage you to read the whole chapter 14 and 15. But therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. That's huge. The third one, and, and Pastor Eric, if you want to come up, that would be great. The third key, how to get rid of that us versus them indoctrination, is that we accept that we are deeply loved by God. Let me, in, let me explain that. The reason we have an us versus them mentality is because of insecurity. And there is nothing more secure than knowing that you are deeply loved by God. And if I were honest with you, I have had seasons of my life with doubt and my faith and struggles. Um, I've never really had too big of an issue with the fact that suffering exists in the world. I think God can still be good and people can still tragically pass away and disease can exist. I, I think I've worked that one out and feel good about it. 
But honestly, the biggest stumbling block to my walk with Jesus, and I, I hope you can be reflective and relate, is accepting that God actually deeply loves me. And not some future polished version of myself. It is very, very hard to believe that this wonderful, pure, amazing, beautiful, omniscient, omnipresent, powerful, generous God would love me. And that he even loved me before I was saved. And he even loved me before I got some sin out of my life. He, he loved me then. And I would say more than anything, that is the stumbling block for us in our friendly fire. When we act out of a place of being an orphan and not a son or a daughter, that is when we steal the food bowl from our siblings. That is when we harm each other the most. A few silly little examples, and I'll be closing soon. I got in fights a lot with my siblings. I remember one, one day my brother and I moved the trampoline next to the roof. And we didn't want our sister to tell, so we locked her in her room. And then, of course, I jump off the roof and bounce super high. And then as I come down, my legs get caught up in the springs and I'm hurt and my brother starts shoving me down because he thinks it's funny and so I chase him around the yard with a two by four once I get up (laughs) sibling fights are great but I remember specifically there are two types of sibling fights that I think we need to repent of and I hope you understand when I say sibling I mean us The first one is the fight of vying for attention from parents, and therefore we have conflict with each other. We are tattling, we are bored, so we start a fight. We just want desperately our parents to see us just as much, if not more, as they see our siblings. I'm going to say that again. The the first kind of sibling fight is one of vying for attention from our father. If we do not know that we know that we know that we are loved by God, we are going to do everything we can to push our siblings down so that we can be elevated and be the true ones who are loved by God. Are you seeing that connection with our friendly fire? If we do not know that we are deeply loved by God, then we will fight with our siblings to be the only ones. But the the beauty of in the kingdom of God, no one has to sit down for me to stand up. It's not a competition. God is able to love us all even the ones who believe differently than you believe. So we don't have to fight each other. And this is why the first altar call that we'll have this morning is to really know that we're loved by God. The second kind of fight is that we build us versus them fights. And this, in the sibling world, looks like alliances, grudges, revenge, gossip, etc. And this is, I've been hurt. And I want to get you back. And I think both of those mentalities we need to repent of. So if you would all close your eyes, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord this morning. That first one, 
I started to tear up just talking about my own journey just briefly with you so you know that this is intimate and personal. But if you yourself do not fully understand or know that you are deeply loved by God, if you struggle to accept that, and I was talking with a young lady recently who's involved in youth ministry, and she was saying to me, Bryce, I just, I'm happy to say to these kids all the time, I, you have a future, you, you have a purpose, God loves you. But it is hard to say that about myself. If you're in this room with every eye closed and you are struggling to believe, to get yourself to actually know that God loves you, I'd love it if you could just raise your hand right now and I'll be the first one. I struggle with understanding that God loves me and I know that that contributes to my harming of my siblings and my friends and my neighbors. If you raise your hand, you're in good company. The second group is the group of people who have been hurt deeply by a certain people group or a set of beliefs and they need to repent of the desire for revenge. And I would take it a step further. Not only do you need to not get revenge, but you need to expand your circle and invite them into your camp, the people who have hurt you. If that's you in this room, if you could just raise your hand. You have been hurt and you want revenge, but you need to repent. Yeah, God sees you. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to simply pray. And before I pray, I just need to say one more thing. I... You, you can all open your eyes. Um, Mother's Day, this few Sundays ago, or past Sunday, I forget now, but we were upstairs in middle school ministry, and I was going along the list of our 20 students and asking them, what, what, did, you, what did you do for your mom for Mother's Day? And I didn't get a lot of, I did this. I got a lot of, ah, I think I'm gonna. Like, I might, I think I'm gonna get her a present. I, and you could just tell, none of them had the means to do so. They, they had not done anything for their moms. And it was actually discouraging, but, but I remember Kina, one of our amazing leaders, she's a mom, she's a great mom. Kina's a great mom. I asked her, all right, Kina, this group's in trouble. What can we do to salvage Mother's Day? And she, one of the best things she said was, determine, commit to, no matter what happens, do not fight with your siblings today. And I think all the parents in the room understand that request. I believe this morning what is on our Father's heart is that desperately, not just on Father's Day, but as we bask in his presence every day, that we would not fight with our siblings. I believe that that is what's on our Father's heart, and I believe that that is the heart of this message this morning. Let's cease the friendly fire. Let's not let Satan have a foothold in our church or the church. Let's model by example being a prophetic community who has radical unity despite our differences. Let me just charge you with prayer. Holy Spirit, we love you. And we're thankful that you are in this room. I just pray right now for every person who is struggling to understand that they are loved by God, Lord, that you would move mightily in their heart right now, that they would feel your love, Lord, that it would move from their head and into their heart that you love them. Lord, I pray that as a result of that, we will no longer harm our siblings for attention, Lord. And I, I pray right now for every person in this room who wants to draw a wall between them and an enemy because they've been hurt, Lord, that they would actually be the first one to start removing 
the planks in that wall and that they would invite the person who has hurt them, just like you did, Jesus, into fellowship and right relationship. Lord, I pray that this, this church, Bethany Assembly, would not be stopped or hindered in our mission because of gossip or slander or a harsh word or abandonment or backstabbing, Lord, but we would be a people committed to unity that we would be a people with such fierce love for one another that the world would look in and say, wow, that, I've never seen that. So Jesus, I pray that every person in this room would walk away loving their neighbor and their enemy as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.